everybody. Welcome to another Whiskey Web and Whatnot with myself, Robert William Wagner, and my co-host, Charles William Carpenter III. With our guests today, Dan Gebhardt from uh, many, many things, Ember Core Team Emeritus, I believe, and uh, Jason API and Orbit and lots of stuff. The most important bit here is, so it's Gebhardt, it's not Gebhardt. Yeah, you got it. Oh, very good. So I said it right. Passed the first test. Yeah. Okay, cool. Beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for joining us. Uh, if you want to give a, a quick intro into who you are, uh, what you do in just a few sentences and let the people know who you are. Sure. Thanks. Yeah, I, I suppose most people listening to this will, will know me from some of my open source work. I've been working on the web since the late 90s, so going way back. And uh, I really got started in open source about, I would say, 10 or 12 years ago. So I've gotten to the point where, where I had almost too many things going. I was a part of the Ember Core team, working on JSON API and, and a pretty big project with Orbit.js. And I actually alumnized myself from the core team last year. So I could uh, give a little focus to uh, to some of the other projects. I also do consulting, mostly on on web projects, on mostly using the tech that I help work on in open source. So I have a, a small consultancy with my brother Larry, and he tends to work on the back end. I tend to work on the front end, although we both are sort of full stack devs. So not unlike Shipshape Code. But I also work a lot with uh, Tilda, the company co-founded by uh, Leia and Yehuda, Katz, and others. And we often do our consulting through them. So some of our, our clients will only know us through them. So. Mm. Cats out of the bag now. <laughs> <laughs> with a K. <laughs> there you go. Uh, <laughs> so in terms of like uh, backend technologies that you work with, do you do Ruby or is Yehuda pulling you into Rust? or something else? Yeah, we mostly use Ruby and uh, you know primarily Rails. Larry's the lead maintainer of JSON API resources, which is a pretty popular gem that uh, makes it pretty straightforward to stand up a, a JSON API server for Rails. So that, that's been our, our main focus. So we sort of have that JSON API contract at the middle, and we tend to build on either side of it. Those are most of the projects we work on. Gotcha. So before we get too deep into all this tech, though, let's open some whiskey. Nice. That's why everyone's here, really. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we have, uh, we heard you like scotch. So we got something that's hopefully kind of scotchy, but a little bit different. So this is the Nika Single Malt Miyagikyo. I don't know how to pronounce that exactly. <laughs> Sounds accurate to me. Yes. <laughs> You get points for trying, though. That's as good as I could do. Mm -hmm. It's been ages. I've only had one, I think, one Japanese scotch before. So mm. this should be a good adventure. Nice. I think you're legally unable to call it that. Yeah. No. <laughs> it can't be called scotch. There are no yeah. Japanese scotches. <laughs> there are Japanese whiskeys. Mm. It's like an American champagne. <laughs> exactly. You can't do that. <laughs> okay. Well. It's got a nice, like, kind of peaty smell to it. Huh. Scotchy, scotch, scotch. Doesn't have a cork, though. There's no pop. No. No pop. Scotchy, scotch, scotch. That's a big pour. Alrighty. 
I have had other Nikas. Yeah, it's a pretty popular Japanese brand, I believe. Yeah, there's one that's like a blend called From the Barrel. Mm. It's a good one I've had a couple of times, and I've had their 12 and their 17 before. Oh, and the coffee grain one. That one's pretty good. Hmm. So this is 100% malted barley. It's 90 proof, and it says on the back that it uses less PT malt and is distilled in a Hmm. hot still heated by indirect steam. For those that know what any of that means, that looks like a lot of whiskey. Yeah, it's probably too much. Also, it either looks like apple juice or pee. Yeah. Don't let that influence your thoughts, though. (laughs) Ooh. With the smell was more peaty, but I actually get a little smoke on the finish. Hmm. I was getting a little bit of lemon on the smell, like acidic. Yeah. Yeah, it's very smooth. It's not aggressive in any way. It's uh, it's very, I think it's very easy to drink. Yeah. Not too peaty, not too smoky, but pretty balanced. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, it's got a, a little hug. Yeah, I would say it's a, a good middle of the road. A little bit of peat, a little bit of smoke, a little bit of sweetness. Mm-hmm. I think for someone who doesn't love a real peaty scotch, this is pretty good. Definitely, yeah. Mm. All right, Dan, so you are familiar with our rating system, cleverly following the uh, mm. octopus eight tentacles. So one to eight, one being horrible, throw it out the window, eight being I will never drink anything else every chance I get on this one or anything in between. How do you feel? <clears throat> I think it's at least six and a half. Pretty good. Is it cruel to cut the tentacle? I don't know if, we're, if we do have. <laughs> Ouch, it's painful. People have. <laughs> it does sound painful. Yeah, people do. <laughs> you know, there's rules in so many areas in life, like not having any rules around this feels good to me. <laughs> nice. Yeah. <laughs> I need a place to rebel. <laughs> Robby and I have been like trying to like categorize now instead of being like out of all whiskeys, what would you think? So I would say between like Japanese whiskeys and scotches that we've had thus far or just in life, I guess I would put this at like a seven. I would definitely have this again if I was in the mood for something like that. Like you said, I think it's really well balanced, but has flavor. Seems to like kind of evolve every time I take a little sip. Mm-hmm. I think Robbie got into my head, so I am getting a little <laughs> lemony kind of. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know, but getting a little lemon there. It's very fresh. Yes. Yeah, I think having had like ten or less scotches and Japanese or Scotch style, I guess whiskeys in in general, I would rate this in the top fifteen percent of the ones I've had. So based on my tiny a bit of experience into this type of whiskey, I'd give it, I think a seven. Sounds good. I would buy that. Yeah. It's a great summer whiskey. I think it doesn't overpower you. Yeah. I would go as far to say as like, I agree with that. And I would even have this over like an ice ball or large cube or something. And Robbie knows I'm not one to really change my whiskey much. But yeah, given this, I could see with a little chill at least with like some whiskey stones to give it a little coolness, mm-hmm. I think would be great. Yeah, definitely. Do you guys uh, add any any water to your whiskey or do you drink it straight? So I used to be a little more diverse in that, like not normally, but if there's some really like high proof, barrel proof stuff, you know, it's like 120 or something, I would do that a little bit first. And kind of see like, oh, does that open it up for me and like take a little edge off? 
before I would go down the the cube. But it is interesting when I try new things. When I used to do that, I would like, okay, you get a pour. The first bit you try just as is, and then you add a little water, a few drops of water, change it up. Yeah, I tend to add a few drops. I used to do ice in mine all the time. I had a totally not legit glass, and I would just do tons and tons of ice, and Chuck would always get upset at me for <laughs> not doing it the correct way. So, you know, we have these somewhat legit glasses now, the uh, the Glencarn or whatever it is. They are, yeah. They're Norlin. They're basically like two-layer Glencarns. So the Glencarn in the middle and then has the outside layer to, like, stop your hand from warming the whiskey, which is maybe excessive. Mm. Yeah. That's a good idea. Yeah, I have... Uh... I have some coffee and tea mugs like that. Why not whiskey mugs that are dual layer like that? That makes a lot of sense. It's the same purpose as a stem on a glass, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the Glencarn shape is also supposed to change how you nose the whiskey or something. But so I don't know. It's supposed to give you both things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think it does work when it's like really high proof. You get that like not as much alcohol to the nose. Yeah. So, Norlin, if you're listening, we love your glasses. We think they're perfect for everyone. I would gladly have two more. We've been working on sponsorship for a while, but I don't think we're doing a very good job because this assumes that in our tight little world that a someone with power at Norlin glasses could actually do something. Yeah. And have heard us. Yeah, you might have to play up the... Uh... The, the whiskey and the whatnot and play down the web. Um, it's, yeah. Maybe you're spreading yourself a little thin for the uh, <laughs> general audience. I Those know. three things. That's true. And, you know, although I love it, I love the format. It's the good mix. Yeah. I think for the specific subset of people that listen to it, it's a great format, but yeah, there are some people I think that are only interested in one of the three. And then they are kind of like, I wish I didn't have to listen to 15 minutes of talking about whiskey before we get to the rest or, you know, whatever. But it is what it is. We have fun with it. <laughs> <laughs> this is what we like. Yeah. You're the ones putting in in the work uh, week after week. So might as well enjoy it. True. The hardest part is because of I'm on West Coast time and Robbie's on East Coast time. And so we do this at like two o'clock in the afternoon. And then I have some whiskey. And then it's like, do you want to do any more work today? I don't want to. That's the hardest part. <laughs> Right, right. This is just, just two o'clock for you, Chuck. Mm, yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, well. Yeah. I'll power through it. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow. So, yeah, I guess uh, we touched a little bit on some tech earlier, but let's dive a little bit deeper into some of this here. So, I guess the first thing that uh, we should talk about is, uh, well, most of what we're going to talk about is, is Orbit, I guess. And so, what led you to create Orbit? Hmm. It was a good seven or eight years ago when... I first started Orbit and I was basically mapping out the data needs for an application I was building and trying to make sense of all those requirements and trying to apply them to other packages like Ember Data. I was already in the Ember world and so I was trying to, how I could say adapt Ember Data to my needs and I really couldn't uh, back then. And I don't think I could even now with the set of requirements I had, which was, you know, basically a offline first app that had an optimistic UI that 
needed, you know, to store data locally in the browser, obviously, and sync it up with a remote server. So work offline and, and online, but also not just do that, but like only some of the data needed to be offline. Like there's some data that makes sense to be offline and other data that really only makes sense when it's when you're hitting the server and you're getting it all the time from for straight from the source. So with all those requirements, I was trying to put together how I could, you know, rationalize these problems and these requirements for this app I was building. And I started to deconstruct, you know, the whole data universe essentially, all the all the the aspects of a of a data library. And I kind of looked at it from first principles. And then, you know, Orbit was the result of all that work. I just, I started to have a pretty clear vision of what, how I could tackle this set of problems and meet these requirements without trying to bend another package way beyond what it could, was designed to do in the first place. And what I came away with, with Orbit, I think is something that is, Sometimes, you know, building for the, the hard case first also helps clarify this, the simple case. And I think that Orbit really scales from the very simple to the very complex set of requirements because I had that really tricky application that I was trying to build, you know, back in 2014 that, that had all these needs. While I was building something kind of from scratch, putting an Ember layer for reactivity over the top, which is what Ember Orbit is, then I started to look at every piece of it and tried to break it down in into components. And it's it's a pretty composable data framework, I think, that lets you think about your sources of data independently of the way that data flows between them, but apply like the same template to to all your sources, treat them all the same, query from them the same, update them the same with the same language. You track all the data with a, in a uniform format, but allow for like all these edges where data might be sent in JSON API format to the server, or, or it could support GraphQL, it could be a simple REST, work with simple REST servers. It could work with sockets. It can, but, you know, it also could work with IndexedDB. And so the only way I could make sense of all this was to, to normalize how to interact with every source of data. And then the other piece is all the glue code. How do you get these sources to interact with each other? And that also made sense to, like, if they're talking in the same language, they can all listen to you can set up listeners to their you know when they change to the and then you can also when a change happens you can update them and so that's uh kind of got focused on all on the sources the normalized format and the querying and updates and then but also this glue code that allowed you to put them all together in a single app so that's the composability layer that you kind of were touching on. So, uh, yeah, it's interesting because you talk about a lot of like solving different parts of those puzzle, that puzzle separately, drawing them together in a composable way, depending on your 
architecture and needs. So when, like you mentioned React or uh, interacting with IndexedDB, for example, like you could you utilize it as like an ORM for IndexedDB? Yeah, absolutely. It's like one small part of that. You could use Orbit to just query IndexedDB, like Dexy.js or something, right? Like, you know, some wrapper for IndexedDB. You could just use the Orbit source to, to query it. And you could, um, you know, query all records of a type from your from IndexedDB and leave it to to that Orbit source to uh, find those records and then also update those records when you want them to. And and so you could also use it just as a simple ORM for your REST server, or at the very simplest case, you could use it to manage data in memory, so just a memory source, which is what a lot of uh, Single page apps are built with a uh, with a cache, and uh, so that cache needs to be managed somehow, and uh, needs to be queried and updated. So you could just use that piece of the puzzle. Yeah, that's interesting because you know, if you're not concerned with like uh, database persistency outside of the user's browser, and if you wanted to like use it initially for like say a POC project or something. And so instead of mocking things, I can have real interactions that are stored and then look at, oh, when my data source is available later on, now I'm going to introduce a syncing strategy, you know, things like that. So, yeah, that's that's it's interesting. So having a plan and that you can composably like step through adding or like using Orbit as uh, your data manager. And then that seems pretty interesting, actually. I didn't realize that facet of it. Yeah, that's one of my my favorite aspects of working with Orbit is using it as simply as possible to just prototype an app really quickly. And I fear that, you know, because Orbit has all these potential, you know, sources you can work with and use cases that it can solve, people overlook the very simplest case, which becomes incredibly simple when you're just dealing with memory or a cache in memory. And it makes it very easy to build, to prototype a POC and uh, just uh, provide a simple data layer in an app, even though, it, you know, it can do the more complicated things. It doesn't have to. Well, we started using Ember Data with Swatch, and then we had a problem where we needed to undo and redo things. Well, I'm kind of getting down the wrong path here, but it, it was really good to be able to release a thing that was just kind of IndexedDB based because we just wanted data locally to begin with. And we wanted to get that really good. And then like one of the best things about Orbit, I think is that I'm going to get the terminology wrong here so you can correct me, but like the thought that each update or transaction or whatever is like, like you can replay them. They're always the same back and forth. Like they're guaranteed to. Oh yeah. They're immutable in history like that. Yeah. 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 That's what worked for us. Yeah, you could think of it like Git, you know, where you have commits that you can uh, play and replay. And in fact, a lot of the terminology for like the memory sources, which have an immutable cache at their root is based on Git. So you can do a, like a, a rebase, a fork, a merge. And so you can track changes deterministically and create things like an undo, redo stack. You can also allow for like complex editing contexts where you're, you fork this immutable data structure, which is really cheap. It doesn't involve any actual mutations to fork it. And then you're working in a branch like you would be in Git, and then you can either just throw that away or, you know, like say you do a bunch of complex edits, they're never going to 
touch the main branch anymore until you decide to merge them back in. And so it gives you a lot of control over changes and your data that's in memory because it's built on those same sort of simple building blocks like uh, like Git commits, essentially. So would would forking and merging be kind of a replacement for something like Ember change sets or something like that, where you could like fork, make all the changes you want. And then if you decided you wanted to roll it back, you could just not merge it or something like that. Yeah, right. You wouldn't have made any changes to the main branch. It's like being able to check out a new branch and Git and uh, try and experiment and um, and then just throw that away if, uh, if it doesn't work out. Meanwhile, you know, the... Uh, the main branch might accept updates from the server, might get socket up updates from sockets and such and be updated. And then, and then you want to merge those changes back in. And, you know, sometimes there could be in theory conflicts too, which you'd have to deal with. So there's all those complexities if you decide to work with it that way. Overall, I think just like working with Git, it, it's, it provides a pretty clear mental model at least, and doesn't try to oversimplify things that are inherently complex, like, you know, like data merge conflicts and such. Someone has to figure that out and it, it can't always be the library. Yeah, for sure. There's a lot of weird stuff that could happen if you went offline or someone else edited the same things you edited or something like that before you tried to save it. So so in that case, what happens in orbit? Like, how does it flag that there is a conflict? When you issue a, you know, a merge, you would, you could, number one, you could check first to see if essentially the, the main branch or the main cache here has, has progressed, has had any commits to it. I'll just speak in Git terminology to simplify <laughs> sure. things for the, for the listeners who aren't using orbit perhaps but so you could check the you know the latest commit on main and see if it's changed since you you forked and if it hasn't then you're you're in the clear now if it has changed then you you know you can still merge and it's going to try to apply those that merge but of course if you're say you're just creating a conflict that that merge might will could potentially fail in which case you would have to decide what to do and you'd get a message about what what the conflict was. And so you could uh, reasonably handle that that conflict, hopefully. So, gotcha. Yeah. We can get you so far, but just like with Git merges, you can't, we can't make all the decisions as a library. Yeah, you can't make some assumptions there and like trying to over enforce one direction or the other. Obviously, there'll be someone who's like, but I wanted to be. I wanted to be. You made me a this is a bug. <laughs> yep. So so it, I think that the important thing is to give you the tools to reason about these hard problems. And if you don't really care and you just want to do last rate wins, you can still just merge and overwrite whatever has been has come in from the server and maybe it's probably going to be probably going to be as good as any data solution out there but if you really want to get analytical you can if you and handle that conflict conflict a little more sensitively yeah i wonder what if there's any other libraries that try to handle that or like i feel like some of this is pretty unique to orbit because like you said, other libraries probably be like, yeah, last one, just merge it. Like, it's cool. We'll just do the last change. Do either of you know anything about some of the other options and, and how they handle things like this? Like how Orbit compares to them? I don't know on as 
to the basis of speaking publicly about it to say <laughs> like I've done like an extensive compare and contrast. So I would be uncomfortable yeah. speaking about that. Like there certainly are some more, some server libraries that are very much sent that are JS based that purport to be a Git database essentially. And mm. I haven't really put them through their paces so much. So I, I can't speak to them. Gotcha. Yeah. And are you incentivized to necessarily, right? Like this is an open source project. It solves your issues. You're an expert on that and it's not falling short for your needs. So you sort of like, when do you go out there? Unless you're like trying to market it and you want to see like, oh, this is still your alternative. This is why Orbit is better. But like, you're not really incentivized in that sense. It is interesting though, because I had perceived it some in different ways. And I've, I've only worked with Orbit a little bit for our very specific use case, but I kind of saw it in like a way to like, okay, we're in an Ember app and we're trying to be offline first to a degree. We're also trying to like convert an application that was only local to utilize an exterior. So like it was checking boxes for our specific use case too, but the composability aspect of it and being able to like step into it slowly is an interesting thing that I didn't realize as well. And I also understand it to be like, it plays the friendliest with JSON API. So that was fine for us because we were in the Ember space. We were already like conforming to that. But like in terms of usage outside of JSON API, you said you could, have you used it with other specs or no spec whatsoever and, or GraphQL? Well, first of all, I, I would say I, I appreciate your perspective on that. I'm glad that you were able to see it just at that client layer that you don't need to know about all the, all the inner workings under the hood. So that's a good sign about get, you know, getting some abstractions right because you weren't even concerned about that, like wiring things together. So that's great. There's composability within Orbit itself. It's made up of you know, about 15 packages or so. And there are a number of them that are very low level that, well, they obviously they build up in, in complexity and, and work together. And there is just at the sort of the, the top layer of the, of the general orbit libraries is this, uh, you know, like orbit data, which provides a really general abstraction for working with data that is not JSON API specific at all. But to make Orbit truly useful to me, I had to, I built Orbit records on top of that, which is then used for all the standard sources. And so Orbit records is, has that notion of relationships and attributes that is kind of unique to JSON API. I've built some very simple things based on Orbit data. It is possible to build a GraphQL abstraction that would work on top of orbit data, but I have not built that, but it's very appealing to me to see that built because the typings are all there. It could be, it could be possible to query that data layer with a GraphQL query, and it could serve the purpose of say, you know, Apollo or something like that too. If So it does have all those primitives in place, but I have focused on the JSON API happy path for now and other people, you know, use it with different libraries. But I think that's the bulk of the usage right now. And uh, it's definitely been scratching my own itch, but obviously it's helped others like, like you all. And uh, 
that's been my focus. But of course, given unlimited time and resources, I'd, <laughs> I'd love to see through that, <laughs> some of those other alternative realities. So. Yeah, I'd be interested to see, um, I don't really remember a ton. I don't know if you do, Chuck, but what Runspire had talked a little bit about that was like, they had a JSON API flavored GraphQL or something like that at LinkedIn, where it was like, sprinkle in IDs and attributes and things in the right spot. And all of a sudden your GraphQL will just work in a JSON API based thing. So there's probably like a, a nice middle ground there where you could do some of that. Maybe he would have thoughts on how we could help like get some more people in to implement at least the middle ground to where like we can kind of use GraphQL or something like that. Yeah, I really like working with Chris. He, he always has some good perspectives. The library you're talking about, I believe, is Ember M3, which is used by LinkedIn and was developed I think, primarily by David Hamilton there. It works on top of Ember data, and it definitely is like a could be compatible with, with Orbit at the right layer. It, it allows for a discoverable schema, which is the cool thing about it, I think, is that it's, you know, it doesn't attempt to pre front load any schema concerns. It goes out and discovers that schema and, uh, and deals with the data as it discovers the schema. So that sort of dynamic schema is certainly compatible with Orbit at the right layer. That's interesting. That kind of reminds me of JSON API schema which was kind of a discoverable schema where you would like request that and then get what you could shape your response as kind of thing. Yeah. Some people will associate like a description, like an open API uh, or JSON schema with their payload so that the whole schema is laid out in the possible values and and so they can validate their data at, at a particular endpoint. So that's that's certainly something that's been that's compatible with JSON API that works well with it. And there's no reason that a client library couldn't use that to discover this schema fully. And uh, so it's all possible. All the hooks are there and such. It's just there are some pragmatic realities about just how much dynamic stuff do you want in a client, especially if you're in a, in a browser. Just how much do you want to load in terms of the schema and the discoverability into your, into your main thread and basically discover your data dynamically as you pull it down? It doesn't often provide like an optimized experience for a web app, which has to pull down all of its libraries and, you know, it could get very heavy weight. Yeah, it's nuanced. And say you're editing an entity or creating a new entity and you don't know what all the options are for that entity, the schema is useful then, right? You want to present and you could dynamically generate forms based on the schema available available, and what's what are public fields and then pop that out. So yeah, I would agree. There's like specific use cases around that. I, I will say, be careful saying the word hooks. It's a trigger word for Robbie. <laughs> Uh-oh. Yeah. Someone's been working in React. I don't even think he really has. He just hates the concept of it. Yeah. So I like to uh, see the things that React releases and says are cool and be like, why is this cool? Why don't we use classes instead of hooks? And like, 
Like everything was nice. You could just set state easily, like state equals this. And now it's like, no, I want to say like, I got to use this and affect this and do whatever. And it's just too complicated. <laughs> I'm going to try to get Eric Elliott on so you guys can argue about it because I think that'll be great. You know, he's been for years. Everything's functional. You know, React is doing it right. Reactive programming functions, functions, functions. Classes are really, really bad is what he says. Since React is like really popular and probably 75% of web developers use it, I can say for certain I'm in the minority of saying all these things are not good. So, <laughs> But I'm happy to debate it with anyone that, that wants to. Yeah, it's pretty much the 800 pound gorilla in the web development world. So it's uh, and everything gets compared to it for right or wrong. So it does it does make new concepts of of reactivity rather difficult. Like I really do think that glimmer tracking and auto tracking is a, is a very simple paradigm for reactivity and quite nice to work with. Our Starbeam now. And Starbeam is uh, is pretty exciting too. I mean, and that really the cool thing about that is that it it brings that concept of reactivity of auto tracked reactivity into into every framework that that wants to support it so it does allow for that level of build for this type of reactivity once and then access it everywhere you know whether it's felt or ember or react i think it's a great a great experiment i hope it succeeds i hope it gets some traction so it's pretty cool i think it's the frameworks have too long been siloed and that we are now seeing some really interesting cross-framework solutions out there, you know, whether you're talking about Starbeam or even something like Remix or Astro, you know, which are not actually, maybe they're primarily focused on on React because they are, you know, of course, that's that's the most popular, but they are explicitly pluggable with that reactivity layer. And I think that's really cool. And um, and I always tried to build Orbit from the start as a framework agnostic layer and, and Ember sits as that reactivity layer. Ember Orbit sits as that reactivity layer that just sits on top. And it also works with, with React and Vue and other libraries too. So because that decision to, to be framework agnostic first was made now, now it's got that compatibility everywhere. So... I'm happy about that. Yeah, it's some future proofing, and I think it's good to BYOV on some things when many other libraries haven't really completely figured it out. And that, you know, we should make the distinction there in, in the view library versus the framework thing where, you know, Remix, you write a whole app in. Redwood, you write a whole app in. Ember, you can write, you know, your whole app in. React, you bring your friends. Which friends? Who knows? It's <laughs> what I like about Next is that it's giving you some guardrails there of like, we don't need all your friends. You can bring a couple friends, but we've got, there's a guest list. Yeah, there's a guest list. We've got a good group here. Right, right. So I was just going to say, like Robbie and I were talking a little bit, Ember and Orbit is our, how we know you, what we talk about. Do you do anything else? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I do a lot. I mean... I've got it aligned so that I'm using them in my all those open source projects in my my day job, so to speak, my day contract. And uh, there's a, a nice you know synchronicity between my work life and my open source projects, and so that's good. But I 
I do love to get away from from the computer. So I do um, I do hike a lot. I uh, I have an old colonial house that I'm work I've been working on for ages and uh, continue to improve. I live in in New England here in New Southern New Hampshire. So I'm putting a uh, a slate roof over part of it. So that's been a fun little project. Mm. So uh, restoring a, a roof that used to be slate that was was taken off, and now I'm putting it back on. <laughs> Why not? Yeah, yeah. Slate is hard. <laughs> Very easy to break. Literally, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's both hard and brittle. <laughs> yeah. But once you get it up there, right, and uh, it can last for 100 years or more. So yeah. So I enjoy, like, woodworking and uh, and doing, doing projects. And also I have... Uh, a couple boys in college now, which is kind of wild for me. Um, they're, <laughs> so we just got an empty nest. My wife and I just have, have an empty nest this year for the first time. And uh, it's been nice having them home for the summer, though. So that's nice. And I have a, a great dog who just turned, I think he's just turned 10, 10 years old. And, uh, and I've been working with a fun client um, for a while now that does a uh, dog DNA or pet DNA analysis. Oh, and so nice. that's been, uh, been really fun. Another like little synergy across my pets and my, my home life and my, uh, my work life there. So. so you got to test your dog out? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but I knew what he was in advance. So it, it was more a confirmation of the test than of him, but <laughs> <laughs> nice, but he is a mix and he's an interesting mix. So it was good. So if they'd have told you Poodle and he's a golden retriever, you'd have been like, I know better. I see no fluff. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. All my confidence would have been shaken in, this, in the scientists behind us. You're going to have to fix the machine learning there or something. I wonder how that works because like, you know, who decides what 100% Poodle is or whatever, right? Like there's slight variations. Oh, for sure. In the that DNA, I would think. So that's a hard problem. Yeah. You're going to find out, Robbie, that your dogs are only 70% French bulldog. That's it. Only 70. <laughs> well, one of them is way too tall. There's no way he's 100% French bulldog. He's got really long legs and they don't have that. So I think he's mixed with something. Hmm. Refund. <laughs> one of the interesting aspects of breeding is that even when you go to get a purebred dog, you're not, you know, they're to keep the the gene pool healthy and such they need to always intermix other breeds and such that maybe were originally used to form that breed and and so you need to keep that gene pool fresh and so you might get a little bit you're not getting a hundred percent french bulldog whatever that means you're getting right you're always getting a mix and so mm -hmm. there is a little bit of a fudge factor and certainly there's a huge uh, sample set of data there that goes into determining how each breed is classified yeah definitely so what kind of dog do you have is it uh you said it's a mix but what's it a mix of he's a shepherd mix he's a belgian Turveran and an australian shepherd so oh, nice He's a big fluffy guy who keeps guard over all of us. <laughs> nice dog. I like human-sized dogs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's not a not a lap dog. <laughs> yeah, human-sized dogs though make me a little bit worried sometimes. Like 
one of our dogs is really aggressive. And if I had a human size, really aggressive dog, it would be all over. Like you can't control <laughs> that. Dog. Yeah. But ironically, I find it to be the case, like the larger the dog, the lazier and more passive they are. Like they just like, they're like, eh, I could eat you. Depends. In my experience. Yeah. And the frequency of small dog to aggressive is it just seems like more often wiener dogs. They're all mean mm-hmm. uh, chihuahuas, all jerks. <laughs> yep. So get smaller. Worst dog. I don't know. <laughs> True. Yeah. That's my opinion. Yeah. There's a reason there's a term ankle biter, right? I mean, they, <laughs> yeah. it's a good thing they don't get over the ankle. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We definitely have some of those in the neighborhood that will go after our dog. And he's, he just wants to, just wants to play, but yeah, they have other ideas. Right. <laughs> All right, Dan, you have many projects. Favorite power tool. <laughs> <laughs> Favorite power tool. Uh, Cross cut miter saw. Ooh, boom. Oh, yes. There you go. That's nice stuff. I don't have one of those. I'm a carpenter. I don't even have one. Mm. Not by trade, just by name. Yeah, mostly by name. I do have a workbench <laughs> with like <laughs> pegboards up, and there's a lot of. I take a lot of satisfaction in seeing how tools are organized on the pegboard, but like using them. And they sit there. Yeah, you can, you know, I got to fix little stuff here and there, but big projects. Other than replacing like the kid's playhouse porch. I haven't had to do a lot lately. I'm good with that. Yeah. It's also nice to, to not just do work and not do work in your free time. Right. So to actually relax a little bit. So, Oh yeah. My kids are young. So, Oh yeah. How old are your kids? Are three and five, so almost six. So relax in my free time. It's like, uh, daddy needs a project to relax. <laughs> yeah. Something that needs concentration so you can't bother me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and Robbie, you're you're new to being a father yourself, right? Yep. Yeah. We have a uh, three-month-old. So he was sleeping through the night for like two weeks and is now not again. So that's fun. <laughs> <laughs> They always keep you on your toes. <laughs> yeah. Luckily, they're not instantly mobile and uh, they're, you sort of all sort of get used to each other together and <laughs> take things in stages and such, even if I know some of those are a little painful. <laughs> yeah. I always think about how crazy it is that like humans are so helpless when they're babies. But you're, that is a good point. If they were really mobile and could run around but had the same mental capacity that they have, that would be bad news. <laughs> like, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. 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 Watch out for your power tools. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. You said you're in New Jersey, right? New Hampshire. New Hampshire. Yeah. One of the news. You've been nowhere new. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't really know a lot about New Jersey or New Hampshire. So um, tell us about New Hampshire. Like, what's what's the area you're in? Either. Like, just pick one. Yeah. <laughs> I used to uh, visit my grandparents on Long Beach Island in New, New Jersey every summer for like a month. And I had just a great, great time there on the Jersey Shore. So it was not not at all the uh, the Jersey Shore <laughs> of popular TV show. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah. Chuck's pumping his fist. So that's right. Yeah. T-shirt time, T-shirt time. I lost a bet once and I had to watch the first season. So <laughs> there you go. So I have some New Jersey roots and some fond memories, but yeah, New Hampshire is a little bit chiller and 
definitely there's a, a little more space. I think New Jersey might be like the most densely populated state and New Hampshire's definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> there's a little elbow room. There are a lot of parks, a lot of state parks and such. It's, uh, I work at home. So, you know, almost all, all my clients are remote. So I actually don't need to travel too much. So, but I'm only like an hour and 15 north of Boston. So I can get down to the big city or an airport very easily. So it's a nice balance. I really, really enjoy it here. And uh, it's great to just be able to get out in nature every day, like and walk my dog off lead and stuff and, and do, you know, without really uh, worrying about the uh, crowding or issues like that. But I guess it is, it's a bit of a, privilege uh, to be working at home. I guess a lot more people have discovered that privilege over the last few years. Yeah. But yeah, used to be a lot more people commuting from here, say down to Boston. And I I never really wanted to do that on the, on the daily. Yeah. Options are nice. Forced commute isn't so much, but uh, yeah, that's nice. I used to go to Boston all the time because I worked for a company there called Acquia. And so a few times a year, go to Boston. And then I had teams. I used to be an engineering manager for them. So I had teams in in Toronto too. So it was like Toronto, Boston all the time, just not in the winter. What do you do in the winter? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we do like snowshoeing and such and uh, cross country skiing and just hiking and such. It's uh, I kind of like the seasons grew up in the Northeast. So I, I feel at home with the seasons. So, I don't mind the cold. I just mind when winter starts to drag on a little bit. If I can get away in March or something, mm-hmm. life is good. Do you have a snowblower? I share one with a neighbor. So uh, nice. Just curious. So it's, <laughs> 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 now we're getting really personal here. Yeah, I was going to say, what was that movie where it was like, your mother was a snowblower? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, but that sounds like a fun movie. Yeah, I'll Google it. Figure out later. Post it on your Twitter. We talked to Wes Boss a little bit about tractors, and he has a snowblower attachment on his and stuff. And I'm just into that stuff because uh, we moved out to the country, so we have uh, 10 acres of land now and have to mow all the time. And like, it's way different than how life was before. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah, 10 acres—that's a serious commitment. I hope you you have some of it as as wooded, right? Or no, you, you don't have to mow all ten acres, do you? Some of it is uh, like big fields that I don't mow, but like a few times a year. But yeah, it all is does have to be mowed at one point. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. So you've got some hay bales and such. Yeah, essentially, yeah. Was it? Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, there was that movie Manchester by the Sea, really sad Casey Affleck movie. Was that? That's in New Hampshire, right? Manchester, New Hampshire. Hmm. I don't know. I mean, there is a Manchester, New Hampshire, but Manchester by the Sea is that? I actually have not seen that movie, so I, I don't know. I mean, Casey Affleck is like a, a Boston guy, also. Mm-hmm. Hmm. That's a good question. I uh, I guess I could look it up, but uh, have you seen it? A little while ago, yeah, it was good, <laughs> but I didn't take it in from a geographical perspective. So, and then it just kind of triggered that in me, like, oh, yeah, there was that, and he's from that kind of area. I think that was New Hampshire. I could be wrong. I could totally be off and making it up. It's possible. I do that. Okay. So, it made, but it was America, definitely yes. not, not England. Yeah, no. 
That's the better Manchester, though. I mean, I don't know if you noticed my hat, but the United one. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I like that one. I've been there. I'm a fan. So related, I've been Caitlin and I watched the first two seasons of Ted Lasso. So I have watched a little bit of soccer related things now. Yeah, you're you're basically a fan. <laughs> yeah, we'll go to a DC United game when I'm back next time. I'm down. Nice. I think anything is better than going to like golf. <laughs> like that would just be too slow. Like as long as there's a little bit of action, I'm cool with it. Yeah, there's plenty of action. And they have a nice field that I've not been to. So I used to live in DC and basically they were building that stadium and it was like near, I was living in the Navy yard. So it was like not far from my house at all. And it opened that. So I think we moved, I don't know, in April and it opened when the season started in like August or something. I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, it was like so close. So I've not been. (laughs) Suffice to say, I would like to go to Audi Field. Chuck is looking for an excuse, Robbie. Always. (laughs) Excuses to get into things. Hey, come fix the internet in the office and we'll go. (laughs) Perfect. Excuses to get into things. Excuses to get out of things. It's all an excuse. (laughs) (laughs) That's what we all need. (laughs) All right. We're about at time here. Was there anything we missed, Dan, that you uh, would like to bring up? Anything you'd like to plug? Anything like that? I would say that although JSON API itself probably seems fairly dormant, we're actually on the verge of a pretty exciting new release of version 1.1. And it adds some new capabilities and adds a whole bunch of extensibility. So I'm excited to get that out. So basically, it provides a negotiation mechanism for extensions and profiles, so ways to extend the spec or say how you're using the spec in a particular way, so in a more opinionated way. So there actually is news on that front, finally, after after working through it over, over the years. So that's the thing I'm currently focused on most open source. I'm excited about that. And um, yeah, that's, uh, I'll leave it at that. Awesome. All right, cool. Yeah, so check out JSON API if you haven't recently. New cool stuff coming. Thanks for being on, Dan. Everyone that was listening, if you liked it, please subscribe. And we'll catch you guys next time. Thanks for listening to Whiskey Web and Whatnot. This podcast is brought to you by ShipShape and produced by Podcast Royale. If you like this episode, consider sharing it with a friend or two and leave us a rating, maybe a review, as long as it's good. You can subscribe to future episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more info about ShipShape and this show, check out our website at shipshape.io.